number of folks here that uh, I'm not sure that I have met. I would like to meet you before the day is out. My name is Dave Silvernail, one of the pastors uh, here at Potomac Hills. We are in Matthew chapter 8 today. and This is a communion Sunday. It's a little bit different. And uh, so sermon comes earlier and then we have communion. We like to... Uh, Take our time a little bit with communion. We don't rush through it because we find it to be a very important time uh, for our congregation. But we're in Matthew chapter 8, verse, uh, first 17 verses. I'm going to sort of go through those as we go, but I'd like to read them for you right now. Matthew chapter 8. This is following the Sermon on the Mount. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. Behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. When he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. The servant was healed at that very moment. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, who took our illnesses and bore our diseases. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us the scriptures and making us your people. You've brought us this amazing gospel once again to learn more about your son, Jesus. We ask you this morning to give us the grace to see ourselves in these stories. We ask for the grace to see how we fit, who we are, how we treat others. So by your Spirit, open this gospel to us. Help us to see Jesus. As always, for this, we need your grace. And just like the little children, help us to learn from you and about you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. This is a great series of stories, three healings that happen here in Matthew chapter 8. And as I was reading this, I was really touched by the first one. It's a short one. And sometimes my curiosity gets the better of me. 
And I wonder out loud, and that's what I'm about to do here, I'm going to wonder out loud about this man who felt Jesus' compassionate touch. He makes one appearance, he has one request, he receives one touch. But that touch changes his life. And I wonder if his story went something like this. One year during harvest, my grip on the scythe seemed weak. The tips of my fingers numb. First one finger, then another. Within a short time, I could grip the tool, but I could scarcely feel it. By the end of the season, I felt nothing at all. The hand grasping the handle may as well belong to someone else. The feeling was completely gone. I said nothing to my wife, but I know she suspected something. How could she not? I carried my hand against my body like a wounded bird. One afternoon, I plunged my hands into a basin in water, uh, of water intending to wash my face, and the water turned red. My finger was bleeding. I didn't even know I was wounded. How did I cut myself on a knife? Did my hand slide against the sharp edge? It must have, but I didn't feel anything. It's on your clothes, too, my wife said softly. She was behind me, and before looking at her, I looked down at the crimson spots on my robe. For the longest time, I stood over the basin, staring at my hand, and somehow I knew that my life was forever altered. Shall I go with you to tell the priest, she asked. No, I sighed. I'll go alone. And I turned and looked into her moist eyes, and standing next to her was our three-year-old daughter. And squatting, I gazed into her face, and with my good hand, I stroked her cheek saying nothing. What could I say? I stood and looked again at my wife. She touched my shoulder, and with my good hand, I touched hers. It would be our final touch. The priest didn't touch me. He looked at my hand, now wrapped in a rag. He looked at my face, now shadowed in sorrow. I never faulted him for what he said. He's only doing as he was taught. He covered his mouth and extended his hand, palm forward. You are unclean, he told me. And with that one pronouncement, I lost my family, my farm, my future, and my friends. My wife met me at the city gate with a sack of bread and coins. She didn't speak. By now, friends had gathered. And what I saw in their eyes was a precursor to what I'd seen in every eye since. Fearful pity. As I stepped out, they stepped back. The horror of my disease was greater than their concern for my heart. So they and everyone else I have ever seen since stepped back. Five years have passed, and no one has touched me since. For five years, no one touched me. No one, not one person, not my wife, not my child, not my friends. No one touched me. They saw me. They spoke to me. I could sense love in their voices. I saw concern in their eyes, but I didn't feel their touch. There was no touch. Not once. No one touched me. What is common to you? I coveted handshakes, embraces, a tap on the shoulder to get my attention, a kiss on the lips to steal my heart. Such moments were taken from my world. No one touched me. No one bumped into me. What I would have given to be bumped into to be caught in a crowd for my shoulder to brush against somebody else's. 
but for five years it hasn't happened. How could it? I'm not allowed on the streets. Even the rabbis keep their distance from me. I'm not permitted in my synagogue. I'm not welcome in my own home. I repulse those who see me. Five years of leprosy have left my hands gnarled. Tips of my fingers are missing. Portions of an ear and my nose. And at the sight of me, fathers grab their children. Mothers cover their faces. Children point and stare and scream. The rage, the, the rags on my body can't hide my sores, and the wrap on my face, face can't hide the rage in my eyes. I don't even try to hide it anymore. How many nights do I shake my fist at the silent sky? What did I do to deserve this? There's never a reply. Some think I sinned. Some think my parents sinned. I don't know. All I know is I've grown so tired of it all. Sleeping in the colony, smelling the stench. I grew so tired of the damnable bell I'm required to wear around my neck to warn people of my presence. As if I needed it, one glance, and the announcements begin, unclean, unclean, unclean. A few weeks ago, I dared to walk on the road into my village. I had no intention of entering. Heaven knows I just wanted to look at my fields. Gaze again on my home by some chance maybe see the face of my wife. I didn't get to see her. I did see some children playing in the pasture. I hid behind a tree and watched them scamper and run and play. And their faces are joyful and their laughter is contagious. And for a moment, just for a moment, I was no longer a leper. Once again, I was a farmer and a father. Just a man. And infused with their happiness, I stepped out behind the tree and tried to straighten my back and breathe deeply. And then they saw me. And they screamed. And they ran. One, though, lingered behind the others. One paused and looked in my direction. I don't know, I can't say for sure, but I, I think she might have been my daughter. I'm not really sure, but I think she was looking for a father. And that look is what made me take the step I took today. Of course, it's reckless, and of course, it's risky. What do I have to lose? He calls himself God's son. Either he'll hear my complaint and kill me, or accept my demands and heal me. And those are my thoughts. I came to him as a defiant man, not moved by faith, but by anger. God brought this calamity on my body, and he's either going to fix it or end it. But then I saw him. When I saw him, I was changed. You have to remember, I'm a farmer. I'm not a poet. I can't find the words to describe what I saw. All I can say is Judean mornings are sometimes so fresh, and the sunrise is so glorious, that to look at them is to forget the heat of the day before and the hurt of times past. And when I looked at his face, I saw a Judean morning. Before he spoke, I knew he cared. Somehow I knew he hated this disease as much as me. No, even more than I hate it. And my rage became trust and my anger became hope. And from behind a rock, I watched him descend a hill. There were throngs of people following him. I waited until he was just paces away from me. And I stepped out. Master. He stopped and looked in my direction, as did everyone else. A flood of fear swept across the crowd. Arms flew in front of faces. 
Children ducked behind parents. Unclean, someone shouted. I don't blame them. That was the huddled mass of death. But I scarcely heard them. I scarcely saw them. I'd seen their panic a thousand times. His compassion, however, I had never seen before. Everyone stepped back except for him. He stepped toward me. Toward me. Five years ago, my wife had stepped toward me. She was the last one to ever do that. But now he did. I didn't move. I just spoke. Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. Had he healed me with a word, I'd have been thrilled. Had he cured me with a prayer, I would have rejoiced. But he wasn't satisfied with speaking to me. He drew near me. He touched me. Five years ago, my wife touched me. No one has touched me since until today. I will, his words are as tender as his touch, be clean. An energy flooded my body like water through a plowed field. In an instant, in a moment, I felt warmth where there had been numbness. I felt strength where there had been atrophy. My back straightened, my head lifted, and when I had been eye level with his belt, I now stood eye level with his face. And he smiled. He cut my, uh, his hands on my cheeks. He drew me near. I could feel the warmth of his breath. I could see the wetness in his eyes. See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. And so that is where I'm going. I will show myself to my priest and then embrace him. And then I'll go home. And I'll show myself to my wife and embrace her. And I'll pick up my daughter and embrace her. I'll never forget the one who dared to touch me. He could have healed me with a word. He wanted to do more than that. He wanted to honor me, to validate me, to christen me. Imagine that. Unworthy to be touched by man, yet worthy of the touch of God. I was a leper. I was untouchable. And no one touched me until today. Perhaps his story went something like that. See, Matthew 8 begins where chapter 4 leads off. With the Sermon on the Mount as sort of a parenthesis in between. Because at the end of chapter 4 we read, Jesus went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. Great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. And then we got to chapter 5, the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, and we read, seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he had sat down, his disciples came to him. And so up on the mountain, he preached his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount. And then the beginning here of Matthew 8, when he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. He's just finished the Sermon on the Mount. 
And if you remember, as we went over that sermon for many weeks, Jesus has turned the religious beliefs and practices of popular Judaism, and especially those of the scribes and the Pharisees, upside down. He told them, in effect, that their teaching is wrong, their living is wrong, and their attitude is wrong. In fact, virtually everything they believed in, stood for, and hoped for was unbiblical. The Lord overturned their entire religious system and exposed them as religious hypocrites. And unlike the Jewish teachers of that day, Jesus didn't quote the Talmud, the Midrash, the Mishnah, or the other rabbis. He recognized no written authority but the what we would call the Old Testament. And he put his own words on a par with it. And the result was, as we read at the very end of Matthew 7, when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their scribe. And so now, going all the way back to the beginning of Matthew, we see that Matthew has demonstrated Jesus is the Messiah. His legal qualifications through his genealogy, his prophetic qualification through the fulfillment of prophecy by his birth and infancy, his divine qualification by his father's own words at his baptism, his spiritual qualification by his perfect resistance to Satan's temptations, and his theological qualification through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. And now in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew is dramatically setting forth still another qualification of Jesus to be the Messiah, and that's Jesus' divine power. Through the miracles of these two chapters, Matthew is going to show beyond a doubt that Jesus is, in fact, the very Son of God, because only God can do such supernatural feats. And in an astounding display of power in these two chapters, Jesus will cleanse the leper, heal two paralytics, cool a fever, calm a storm, cast out demons, raise a girl from the dead, give sight to two blind men, restore speech to a man named, uh, made dumb by demons, and heal every other kind of disease and sickness. These two chapters are critical to understanding the life and ministry of Christ. These two chapters, Matthew records a series of nine miracles performed by the Lord, each one selected out of the many that he must have performed during his ministry. The nine miracles of Matthew 8 and 9 are presented in three groups of three miracles each. And in each group, Matthew recounts the miracles and their responses. Since we're looking at the big picture, we'll go through these rather quickly. We just heard we're going to start with the wretched leper. The wretched leper starts with a W. On your blanks there. Starting at verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, the leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. In New Testament times, leprosy was the most dreaded disease. 
the condition renders the body a mass of ulcers and decay. Fingers curl, skin discolors, the decay starts to smell. Certain types of leprosy would numb the nerve endings, leading to a loss of fingers, toes, even a foot or a hand. Leprosy is death by inches. In Scripture, the leper is symbolic of the ultimate outcast, infected by a condition he didn't seek, rejected by those he knew, avoided by the people he doesn't know, and condemned to a future he can't bear. And the memory of each outcast must have been that day that he's forced to face the truth. Life will never be the same. Social consequences are as severe as the physical consequences. And in those days, it was considered contagious. So the leper was quarantined, banished to a leper colony. The banishing of a leper seems harsh and unnecessary today. But the ancient Near East isn't the only culture to isolate their wounded. We may not build colonies or cover our mouths, but we certainly build walls and duck our eyes. A person doesn't have to have a leprosy to feel quarantined. Growing up, most of us knew a kid who was the outcast. Perhaps he wasn't very athletic. Maybe he, she wasn't very pretty. A learning disability, a constant physical ailment, too short, too tall, too skinny, too slow. Whatever the reasons, kids can be hard. And for some reason, we were hard on far too many. We treated them like they were infected. And like the leper, they suffered from a condition they didn't create. And like the leper, they're put outside the group, the village, the school, even the church. Maybe you were that kid. If so, you know the feeling. The divorced know this feeling. So do the handicapped. They felt it, as have the less educated. Some shun unmarried women who are moms. We keep our distance from the depressed. We avoid the terminally ill. We have neighborhoods for immigrants, convalescent homes for the elderly, schools for the simple, centers for the addicted, and prisons for the criminals. The rest simply try to get away from it all. God only knows how many are in voluntary exile. Individuals who live quiet, lonely lives infected by their fear of rejection and their memories of the last time they tried. They choose not to be touched at all rather than to risk being hurt again. I think it's interesting that Moses' first miracle in Egypt was to cleanse himself from leprosy to show God's power to Pharaoh. Jesus' first miracle recorded in Matthew is to cleanse another who has leprosy and to touch him and not become unclean. See how Matthew is showing the superiority of the Lord Jesus even over Moses. Moses, like the priest, had to offer sacrifices for himself first and then for the people, but Jesus needs no forgiveness of sins. In fact, if you and I had been in Israel and we touched a leper, 
we would have been declared ceremoniously unclean. But Jesus can touch a leper and not be unclean. It's the kind of power he has. It's the kind of power he has over disease, and it's the kind of power he has over sin. It's a testimony to the power of Christ. It's a testimony to his divinity, to his claim to be the Savior, to his claim to be the Messiah. Perhaps today there's a powerful sin in your life, a sin which you've tried to shed these last few years, but you can't shake it off. Perhaps it's sin in a relationship, perhaps it's sin of some sort of substance abuse, and you have tried with all your might and you can't shake it, and you're at wit's end, and you think it's such a deep sin, such a terrible sin, such a horrible sin that Christ himself can't break you free from it. This leper is here to tell you you're wrong. The Lord Jesus Christ has power over every sin and circumstance, and if we trust him, he answers prayers. We must first, though, admit our spiritual leprosy before him. See, if this leper hadn't admitted he was a leper, he couldn't have been cured of his leprosy. We have to admit that we're lepers, that we're spiritual lepers. We need the forgiveness of sins. We're sinners. We deserve judgment. And we have to do this, we have to admit this, before we can ever taste and see that the Lord is good. Receive the forgiveness of sins. If we can't admit our sin, we're going to remain a wretched man, or we'll remain a wretched woman, and as a spiritual leper, we'll remain outcast, even if no one knows but us. Sometimes we're not considered outcasts because of what is perceived to be wrong with us. Sometimes we're outcasts simply because we're not like them. That's the situation with this next guy, the respectable Gentile. The respectable Gentile, starting at verse 5. It says, when he entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Only say the word, my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled. He said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. Say, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. To the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. In the story of the centurion's servant, we see that Jesus is Savior of both Jews and Gentiles. Savior of the world. It's a great passage. Centurion's a Roman officer. This particular centurion would have been from the 10th Roman Legion, a historic army of great power and destruction. The occupying army of Palestine. Conquering army of Israel. And yet this Roman officer comes humbly to Jesus. Now, I don't imagine the Romans often interacted very politely 
with your average Jewish peasant. I'm assuming there would have been an air of superiority. But this officer comes humbly to Jesus and he says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. Sir, Lord, I have a servant. He's deathly ill. He's suffering not simply from paralysis, but he's he's in great pain, some sort of palsy. There's nothing I can do for him. Now, we don't know if the centurion had heard Jesus preach. And we don't know whether the centurion had seen Jesus' miracles. And we don't know whether the centurion had heard about Jesus' ministry. But I know this. That centurion knew the Lord Jesus could heal his servant. Starting at verse 7. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. And immediately the centurion, in his humility, is overwhelmed by what Jesus has said to him. He says, verse 8. I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. And I say to another, come, and he comes. My servant do this, and he does it. The Roman centurion knew what it was to have delegated authority from Rome. He understood the chain of command. He had people who worked for him. He knew somehow that Jesus had authority from heaven, and he could say by the power of heaven, go, come, be healed, be forgiven. And it would happen. So he said, only say the word and my servant will be healed. Now we're told something quite amazing in this passage. We're told the Lord marveled at this man. What's it take to get Jesus, the Lord of glory who came down from heaven to marvel He marvels at this man. He turns to those who are following me. He says, verse 10, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. He goes on and tells them, I haven't found faith like this among my own people. Among the children of Israel, they have the law, the prophets. They've heard from Moses and Isaiah. They got the testimony of the rabbis over all the, the years. I haven't found anybody who believes like this. So he turns to that man. He says an amazing thing. Verse 13. Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Notice he said he doesn't say go, let it be done for you as you have requested. He says let it be done for you as you have believed. With a word, Jesus heals that servant. Just as God spoke the world into being by the word of his power, the Lord Jesus speaks this man into health having never seen him. He's never gone to his house. The passage makes clear that Christ has concern for all kinds of people. Even the enemies of his own people, the Romans who occupy their land. Romans, Gentiles, dirty, unbelieving, barbaric Gentiles. And the Lord cares about them, even the centurion. He wants to save them, and he wants them to be healed, and he wants them to have faith. that we would have such an attitude towards our enemies. We would have that same attitude towards those who are against us, who oppress us. When people speak badly about Christians, you don't have to read the news very much to find that. 
Is our response that we want to see them brought to faith? Do we trust the power and authority of Christ like this centurion did? Do we really believe the Lord Jesus can speak and it's done? Do we trust him like that? Have we trusted him like that for faith? Have we shown the kind of that kind of humility before him that the centurion shows? Centurion's an important guy. And Jesus, by the standard of the world, was not. And yet we know now it's the other way around. But the centurion didn't. And yet he's humble before the Lord. Do we humble ourselves before the Lord? Sometimes we're not viewed as outcasts because there's something wrong with us. And sometimes we're not viewed as outcasts because we come from the wrong group, the wrong race, the wrong part of the country. Sometimes we're viewed as outcasts just because we're unknown and unimportant, like the unknown woman, verse 14. Jesus entered Peter's house. He saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. Now, in Jesus' day, not true for most Jews today, but back then, the first thing many male Jews did every morning was to pray, Lord, I thank you I was not born a slave, a Gentile, or a woman. And the first two miracles of Matthew chapter 8, Jesus shows mercy and compassion not only to an outcast leper, but to an outcast Gentile and to a slave, and now he shows compassion to a woman. The proud, self-righteous men couldn't have missed Jesus' point. Physical health, race, social status, gender makes no difference to him. None of those things are an advantage or disadvantage as far as his ministry, as far as his message is concerned. And the disadvantaged more often receive his blessing due to their being more humble and more aware of their need. And likewise, the advantage, people like us, more often than not fail to receive his blessing due to their being more proud and less aware of their need. Mark tells us that when Jesus, Simon, Peter, Andrew, James, and John arrive at Peter's house, some of the group discovers, Mark 1, now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told him about her. Luke 4 adds the information that her fever was high, and these friends and relatives appealed to him on her behalf. So in response to her request, Jesus went to her room are lying sick in bed with a fever. And here the Lord Jesus comes into the home of Peter. He heals Peter's mother-in-law of a fever. You know, mother-in-laws don't always get good press. But they do here. This would have been a common illness just as it is today. You go to the doctor, first thing to do is take your temperature, right? Then your pulse. That's the way you're breathing, you're alive. That's a start. That's what my doctor says. He doesn't say much else. This isn't really all that dramatic. It's not nearly as dramatic a sickness as the leper had. It's not as dramatic a healing. The Lord reaches out, touches her wrist, just like a physician who's going to take her pulse. But instead of taking her pulse, he heals her just by touching her. And immediately she gets up and begins serving the Lord, even though she has just been laid up with a fever. I think it reminds us there's nothing too small to take to the Lord. 
The Lord cares for us in all of our mundane, routine, ordinary, everyday affairs. Even a common fever. And the Lord heals Peter's mother-in-law. So in these three miracles, Jesus is shown to be the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, by his fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies. He shows his sovereign power by exercising the demons of those who are possessed and brought to him. He shows he's more powerful than the spiritual forces of darkness. And all of that, Matthew tells us, is to prove that he is the fulfillment of prophecy. He is the fulfillment of prophecy, verse 16. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Jesus is the one who fulfills prophecy. Because Isaiah, in his passage on the suffering servant, is going to come save his people from his sins, says in Isaiah 53, which is quoted here, which was quoted in our responsive reading earlier, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. And Matthew's saying, look, this is the Messiah that we've been looking for. This is the Messiah of God, the Savior of Israel. Not only of Israel, but anyone who trusts in him. Lepers, no disease is too great for him. The centurion's paralyzed servant, this man loves and saves even Gentiles. Mother-in-law with a fever, there's no illness too small. Those possessed by demons beyond the help of any human, he saves and spares them. There's no care too small, there's no care too big for the Lord Jesus to answer. And the first three miracles reported in detail by Matthew all involved the healing of physical affliction. And when Jesus healed, he did so with a word or a touch. No gimmicks, no formulas, no fanfare. He heals them instantaneously. There's no drawn-out period of waiting or gradual restoration. He heals totally, not partially, no matter how serious the disease. He heals everyone who came to him, and even some who don't even see him. He heals organic as well as functional afflictions. And most dramatically and powerfully of all, he even raises the dead. It's a small wonder, therefore, that Jesus' healing miracles bring widespread attention. Think of the day in which he lived. People had very few means to alleviate the symptoms of sickness and disease. I mean, the prospect of a cure is too astounding to believe. The rumor of such a thing would bring out multitudes, both the hopeful and the curious. Kind of like having an ambulance go down your street. You just got to go look outside and see what's going on. But they live in a society where, you know, they have no health care. We live in a society where basic good health is accepted. Largely, it's just a matter of course. It's difficult to appreciate the impact that Jesus' healing ministry has in Palestine. And for this brief period of time, diseases and afflictions are eliminated wherever Jesus goes. He goes through the hand healing lots of 
people. We see him healing in Matthew 4, 8, 9, 10, 12, 14, 15, 17, 19, and 21. He does it a bunch. And he says on several occasions his miraculous work should have been more than enough reason to believe in him. As we read, he says that John 14, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. Such things have never happened before in the history of the world. They have to have a divine cause. And that's what makes the rejection of the scribes and Pharisees and Sadducees and, and all the other uh, religious leaders so self-condemning. They couldn't deny that Jesus performed these miracles. And only the most hard-hearted resistance to the truth can make a person reject his divinity in the face of such overpowering evidence. Those who wouldn't believe in Jesus are indicted by every miracle he performs. So Jesus comes here, he performs miracles, he heals people, he touches outcasts, he goes to the people nobody else wants to be around. So what? We see here, Matthew 8, the Lord heals a leper, a paralytic, and a woman with a fever. And there's some common characteristics to these. First, he's dealing with the most basic level of human need, the physical. Even though our earthly life involves a lot more than the physical, physical is still pretty important. And Jesus is sympathetic to those with physical needs. He reveals the compassion of God towards those who suffer. Second, he responds to appeals, either by the afflicted person himself or by a friend or a relative. You know, the leper asked him uh, to make him clean. The centurion asked on behalf of his servant. And friends and relatives asked on behalf of Peter's mother-in-law. Somebody went and asked him to teach us something. Third, he acts by his own will. Although he's sympathetic to the needs of those who are sick and suffering, he's moved by the appeals for help. Nevertheless, he acts sovereignly. He decided, he chose, healing comes from the Lord. And the 14 ministers to the needs of someone, especially in the eyes of these proud Jewish leaders, is on one of the lower levels of existence. I mean, first person's a leper. Then he deals with his Gentile soldier and his slave. And the third is a woman. We learn from Matthew, these three miracles of his early ministry served the humblest members of society. Jesus shows special compassion to those for whom our society has disdain. They came with confidence because they believed Jesus was compassionate. They came with reverence because they believed Jesus was the Son of God. They came with humility because they believed he was the Messiah. They came with faith because they believed Jesus was the Savior. And they are the unwelcome, the unwanted, the unknown, and the unimportant. Some of you may remember when my good friend Mike Milton preached here three years ago. It was just three years ago. Recently, Mike was forced into early retirement as the Chancellor of Reformed Theological Seminary for this strange medical disease that he contracted after visiting other seminaries overseas. It has temporarily 
stopped his career. On Friday, he wrote a farewell letter to his students. I'd like to quote from it. Mike writes, Always remember that our heroes are not Calvin and Luther. Our real heroes are the everyday anonymous saints. We serve in the pews, in the parishes, in the mission fields, classrooms, counseling rooms, and in the communities where we're called. They live out the faith we proclaim and teach with such courage. There's no light shining on their stories, no biographers picking up the trail of their lives, but there's great light shining, and there are magnificent stories being written in heaven's journals. Your job is to read those stories and to shine the light of Christ's love on them so they know that God sees them. They are the ones, as you continue to minister and perhaps one day even find yourself sidelined from ministry because of some malady like mine. Those are the ones that you will always remember. These are the ones you long to return to. These are the ones who inspire you to bound into the pulpit and look into their familiar eyes and tell them a story they're already living better than you are, but act like they've never heard it before. They're the ones we train and labor for. The little girl with her new braces and insecurity. The little boy who gets shifted from one divorced parent to another. The young college man who wrestles with his faith for the first time and honestly asks God hard questions he needs to ask. The young lady at the bridal rehearsal who was the last of her college class to get married. And the older man who's bride of 60 years. He buried last Tuesday. They live the faith with gospel passion and Christ-like resiliency. That's why we witness, teach, minister, counsel, and pastor. They are our heroes. Remember that. Remember them. All of the theology and training you are receiving is to strengthen them. I think this is the spiritual truth that prompted Paul's pastoral heart to burst forth. 2 Timothy 2.10 Therefore I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. They come with confidence because they believe Jesus is compassionate. They come with reverence because they believe Jesus is the Son of God. They come with humility because they believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And they come with faith because they believe that Jesus is the Savior. This morning we have the Lord's table. How will you come? Think about that. We need to pray. Take a moment to do that and then I'll close. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have given us a king. Thank you that in this passage we see your son. Open our eyes that we might remember how we have been the unwelcome, the unwanted, the unknown, and the unimportant. Help us to see how we've sinned and how we've treated others as outcasts. Help us to reach out to them now with the love of our Savior. Let us be quick to repent, quicker to forgive, and quickest to believe. And remind us again that we can do this because the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Amen.